Morning, church. If you got a Bible, let's open up to Genesis chapter 6 this morning. I'm going to read our text while you're making your way there. Uh, verses should be on the screen for you if you don't have a Bible, but also encourage you to grab one of the black copies of God's Word uh, on your chair or under your chair so that you can read along and uh, make sure what we're looking at, uh, what I'm saying is from what the Lord has already said. So in Genesis chapter 6, God's Word says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and Daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray together one last time. Father God, we ask that in a passage like this, Uh, that uh, you would help us, help us to see what you want us to see in this passage, Father, to to leave again transformed by your truth. God, we may have certain questions about this text, but I believe that you have different answers for us to leave with, things that we may have not thought we would get from this text. Uh, And so, God, I pray that you would focus our eyes, focus our hearts, open our ears um, to the truth of Jesus Christ, to the good news uh, of his death and his resurrection, to the gospel of life now and eternal life later that is available to us. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 6, a passage, short passage, but a passage with plenty of questions uh, that you may be having as a, um, a good student of God's Word. You, you probably ought to have several questions about the who, what, where, when, how, why of who these people are and what they're doing and uh, how this came about. Uh, and yet, there is something that the, these verses are building to that I think is what the Lord wants us to, to leave with. Uh, something in, in verse 8 that we will focus on at the end of our time together. Uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I don't love superheroes uh, stories that much. And I know that offends some of you. 
Some of you get upset and wonder wh- why. Why would you not like superheroes? I just never have like fully been into them. I don't love the movies. Uh, you know, partially the, uh, you know, getting this power from this, you know, substance and a, a spider bite. And I've been bit and, you know, nothing happens. And, you know, this, that, or the other. Uh, that being the case, that's probably why I like Batman more than anybody, right? Because he has no powers, just cool gadgets. And I like gadgets. Uh, I like real heroes, war heroes that save people's lives. Real heroes that, that save people's lives like Troy Aikman and Nolan Ryan and <laughs> Dirk Nowitzki. You know, those kind of sports heroes that really mean something. Superheroes just don't. I've tried. I'm currently trying to like superheroes. And it is really hard, really hard uh, in this day and age. But uh, this story needs some superheroes. Um, In fact, there there may even be a mention to some potential heroes. But, But as we'll see, those heroes can't even save from this situation. This situation is so bad that there is no even superhero that could save people from this situation. Uh, there's only one who in the end will be, will be able to save. I'm assuming some of you could probably guess who that is, uh, but I want you to see how this is displayed, how uh, the building to salvation in this text really develops. And so, um, keep in mind, uh, in this text, uh, Alistair Begg has been a helpful um, pastor um, leading the way for me and many of our generation. Uh, and he says um, so well to his church and to pastors that he trains that the main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. That's going to be important in a text like this with a lot of questions and answers wanted regarding certain things, but let's make sure we focus on the main thing. And the main things will be developed from the plain things in the Scripture. And one of the plain things I think we see in this, in this Scripture is that man multiplies. And that when man multiplies, wickedness multiplies. Uh, we see that just verse after verse after verse after verse. If you're taking notes this morning, uh, write this down. When man multiplies, wickedness abounds. When man multiplies, wickedness abounds. We see that in the first four verses, and that's really how this passage of eight verses breaks up, really the first four and the last four. And we see great parallels between the first four verses and the second four verses. In chapter 6, verse 1, we see man multiplying. It says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. We just got finished looking at Genesis chapter 4, the, the last uh, group of verses there, we looked at Genesis chapter 5, and what we had there were two genealogies, really laying out these family trees, this picture 
of man multiplying on the face of the earth. You had Cain's line, uh, a line of evil and sinful uh, lifestyles and wickedness uh, being laid out in chapter 4. Then you had the genealogy of Seth in Genesis chapter 5, the multiplication of his family and his family tree, um, contrasting that of Cain, this being a family who, uh, according to chapter 4, verse 26, called out, uh, called upon, proclaimed the name of the Lord. Or in uh, chapter 5, verse 21, one of their uh, members, or in verse 22, one of their members described as walking with the Lord, um, contrasting that of Cain, who was described earlier in chapter 4, verse 16, as going away from the presence of the Lord. So we see this family tree developing over here, this wicked and evil one, and this one that by faith uh, is calling upon the name of the Lord, walking with the Lord, and they're growing up together, and man is multiplying on the earth. And as it said in chapter 5, sons and daughters were born to them. And so this is the context in which chapter 6 is written, this season in which man is multiplying. And then we read in verse 2 that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any that they chose. Now, I imagine that you have some question about who those individuals are. But if you were to read Genesis 1 through 11 in one sitting and just kind of went through it to get the main storyline, what you would probably hear is not so much a question of who are these people in that verse. What you probably would have heard was an echo back from Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, in verse 6, we read this of Eve. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she took of its fruit and ate. Let me read verse 2 for you again in chapter 6 in our text this morning. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive or good, and they took as their wives any that they chose. You see, what's happening here is the same thing that happened back in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, and, and what happened in Genesis chapter 3 was Eve being deceived and tempted uh, to take what she saw was good, even though she was told not to, and was lied to, telling her that when she does, she would become like God. And whoever these people are in this passage uh, are believing that they're God, that they're above the law, that they're above the rules, that they can do whatever they want to do, not have to follow the Word of God. And they themselves either think they are gods themselves or will be like God when they take what is good in their eyes as they, they choose. And so that's helpful for us to remember, not only to go backwards to Genesis 3, but in the next section of ver verses we'll see that play out as well. So remember that, saw, good, and took. So, but who are these people? 
Who are these sons of God? Who are these daughters of men? Uh, There are several interpretations of this, uh, really two main ones, both of which uh, godly men and women, pastors, theologians, over centuries, (laughs) even millennia, have landed in both uh, interpretations. Uh, This is important for us to to remember that this is not one of those close-handed doctrinal truths uh, that we as Christians, we as a church are going to say, if you don't believe like I believe in this, then I'm just going to have nothing to do with you, right? Or you're not a Christian because you don't believe that the sons of God are this, that, or the other. Uh, This is one of those open-handed things. We do our best to be able to um, see what, who these individuals are, what God's Word is teaching us about them. Uh, but thanks be to God, none of the eternal sal- um, saving truths of the gospel are built on or are, are, are dependent upon who these people are. Uh, again, really, the, the focus here is that mankind is multiplying, and in the midst of that, wickedness is multiplying. Uh, one of the interpretations is that the sons of God uh, are the sons of Seth, and that the daughters of men are the daughters of Cain. Uh, this would be not a linguistic uh, interpretation, more of a contextual interpretation, because we just got done looking at the genealogies of Cain and the genealogies of Seth, and so having just heard about those genealogies, some would take these individuals, the sons of God, being those who call upon the name of the Lord, according to Genesis 4.26, those who walk with God, the sons of Seth, um, seeing the daughters of Cain Um, as being attractive, as good. And rather than choosing among Seth's family tree, uh, women who also call upon the name of the Lord, who also uh, walk with the Lord, they chose those who were just simply attractive to them. They chose as they pleased and chose daughters of Cain. Now, that would have application for us if, if that's uh, what the right interpretation is, we're reminded in Second Corinthians um, that we are to not be unequally yoked, that Christians are to marry Christians, to find a spouse among Christians. There's all sorts of application that we can find there. And, and if that were the case, then, uh, then you can see the problems that even come from just that. Um, there's another interpretation um, this one is way harder to reason with, humanly speaking. Um, this is another interpretation that's been held for many, many, many years. Uh, and that would be that the sons of God are angels, specifically fallen angels. And this one is more linguistic in that uh, in the Bible, Sons of God are referred to as angels. Um, Job is a great example of that. And early on in Job, in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, it speaks of 
the sons of God coming before the Lord himself. In Job 1.6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Uh, that these sons of God were angels is, is clear from a biblical understanding of that word there. Uh, we also see uh, help for us, even though this doesn't seem to make sense humanly speaking, but we see help from this in the New Testament as well. Uh, when we say the, that the sons of God were angels, were what were, uh, some would say that it was actually the fallen angels who come down and, and choose these women as their wives and have children with them. I think more would probably say that these are um, fallen angels who come down and, and possess men who indwell in men, mankind and lead them and deceive them to acting in crazy manners, sinful manners. If we go to our New Testament, it helps us to, to remember all of the stories in the Gospels uh, where Jesus cleansed people from demon possession, that men and women, even adults and children, were indwelled by fallen angels and caused to do crazy things, breaking chains, throwing themselves into fires. And so this is not uh, impossible. This happens even in the time uh, of Jesus. Fallen angels indwelling mankind, leading them, deceiving them to do sinful um, and harsh things in those moments. The New Testament also helps us in telling us, Jesus even speaking about the resurrection in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, that in the resurrection, speaking of angels, they neither marry nor are given, uh, or I'm sorry, speaking of um, individuals, humans in the resurrection, in the new heavens and the earth, new earth, they, are, they neither marry in heaven nor are given in marriage, but they're like angels. They're like angels, angels who don't marry, angels who don't um, be fruitful uh, and multiply like that. They themselves long to be able to have what mankind has. Uh, the New Testament also helps us uh, in looking at this. When we consider uh, even events like in Luke chapter 8. Uh, in Luke chapter 8, when Jesus, while he's in a Gentile territory, he comes upon a demon-possessed man. And when he does, um, the demons call out to Jesus. And, and they even ask him, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Even mentioning Jesus almost always as the Son of God, the Son of the Most High God. And, and in that moment, it says that they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. That, that there was a punishment even um, for angels that they were aware of that because of indwelling 
mankind, they might be punished and sent to the abyss. Uh, This this idea seems to continue on in 2 Peter chapter 2, 4 through 5, where uh, Peter writes, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but he cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And think about how that is tied to this, what he says next. If, they, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, uh, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If we consider that for a second, that there was an act um, not only in fallen angels coming down to the earth because of rebelling against God, uh, but even acts that were done uh, by them later on in dwelling men, that they were punished and sent to this gloomy darkness, to um, this abyss. 1 Peter 3, verse 18, speaks of this as well, that Jesus, when he died and rose again, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. They formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Jude 6 also speaks about this. So there's uh, there's reason to believe, even from the New Testament, that, that in this moment, things were so bad as man multiplied on the earth, wickedness abounded, not only in mankind, but in fallen angels, um, indwelling, leading men to do even worse things that they, than they might do on their own, leading them to do these, these types of things. And so you can see the evil, you can see the wickedness come upon them, and and God wouldn't stand for it. God wouldn't stand for it. In verse 3, it says that, then the Lord said, my spirit, he says, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. God's response to sin is judgment. God is a holy, righteous, sovereign God, a sovereign creator, and he cannot dwell with sin. His response to sin is judgment, and here he judges mankind. And one interpretation of the 120 years seems like a somewhat lighter judgment, compared to the other. One interpretation of the 120 years would be saying after a genealogy that we just saw someone like Methuselah living 969 years, we see the life of mankind cut down to 120 years. And in fact, that's really what we see happen. If you fast forward to Genesis chapter 11, there's another genealogy there, and the years just begin to dwindle down and down and down all the way to Abraham's father, Terah, um, 
who lived a little over 119 years. Uh, 29 plus 119 there. You could look through the Old Testament uh, and, and realize that Moses himself lived to 120 years. The only other person after the lifespan of mankind began to dwindle, live longer than 120, was Aaron, who lived 123 years. And so there's a judgment, a restriction on evil, potentially, in God numbering mankind's years at 120. Another interpretation of that may be that at that moment, God is saying, in 120 years, my spirit shall not abide in man, that mankind will die. Almost saying in 120 years, judgment will come on mankind, which if we play out what, what has happened in Genesis 5 and 6 and 7, 8 and 9 and Noah and the flood, that comes in 100 years. Uh, really could be from that moment, 120 years. So God may be saying in this moment, I'm not going to stand for this forever. I'm going to give enough time um, for Noah to build this ark uh, and then all flesh is going to be wiped out. But either way, the response of the Lord to the sin of mankind and the multiplying wickedness is judgment. Whether it's judgment of individuals living only 120 years and restricting their wickedness, or whether it's sending judgment on all, both are judgment, both are responses to mankind's multiplication and wickedness. And then in verse 4, we see another potential question of of who. Um, We see this new group of people called the Nephilim. In verse 4, it says, The Nephilim were on the earth. This is what I draw your eyes to, where it says, In those days, and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Some interpret the Nephilim because of its place in this passage as the byproduct of fallen angels um, being fruitful with human women and therefore having a certain breed of humanity all to their own. This breed of giants. That's what the word means. Nephilim is giants or uh, comes from the the word to fall, so fallen ones. Um, The language, though, also uh, allows us to understand this as just the fact that the Nephilim were there during this time. Uh, That they were there in those days not the product of those days, that they were there in those days and they were also there afterward. These Nephilim, um, when this was going on, when the sons of God and the daughters of man uh, came into them and bore children to them. And, And so that's probably where I would land. These people would be familiar to the Israelites who were reading Genesis 
In Numbers chapter 13, verse 33, that's another place where the Bible uses this word, and it's described, it's the report that the spies have when they go into the land that the Lord has promised them, and they come back saying, it is a land full, Uh, it it is fruitful, Uh, a land full uh, of milk and honey, and the land is great. They came back carrying grapes, clusters of grapes on poles that they were so big, but they also reported giants, the Nephilim. And so when you read, when, when we're reading this, we may read into this that the Nephilim are the byproduct of what has just been described, but it seems as if Moses is demythologizing these individuals because people whom the Israelites were familiar with in the promised land, Moses is saying, they were, they were there back then as well. And what we're going to see is that they were known as mighty men. They were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. They were giants in the land. They were men of renown, mighty men, mightier than other men. And yet, when man is multiplying on the face of the earth, And wickedness is abounding, and judgment is coming. Not even these mighty men are going to be able to save themselves from the flood of judgment that is coming. Not even these giants, these men who were looked up to, feared then and in the future, not even they could escape the judgment that God was going to bring because of the sin of the world. That's important for us to remember. If they couldn't save themselves, it's probably true, us being not very giant-like, not men of renown necessarily according to our culture, but that we probably couldn't save ourselves as well. Let's remember that. As we jump into verse 5, and not only do we see man multiplying and wickedness abounding, but note this, that when wickedness multiplies, judgment abounds. We've already seen judgment displayed and hinted at earlier in verse 3, but here it becomes even more clear. And here I want you to remember some of the words that I pointed out to you in verse 2, saw, good, took. And I want you to note how those words are used differently this time. In verse 5, this time the Lord saw. And this time he saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This, if we're reading Genesis 1 through 11, kind of, again, all as one story, we would probably remember another time that the Lord saw. The Lord looked at all that He had created, and He saw that it was good. What the Lord saw earlier was a goodness about creation, but now As man has multiplied in their sinfulness, wickedness 
has multiplied. Judgment has come. Judgment is now abounding because when the Lord looks, all he sees is wickedness. All he sees is evil. I mean, look at the description there. When the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great, that word for great is the same word used earlier in chapter 6, verse 1 for multiply. When the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was multiplied in the earth. And then he goes on, giving a devastating picture that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is damning. I mean, that is drastic. Now, it's not saying that things are as bad as they possibly could be. They could probably get even more worse than this. But what it's saying is that every aspect of humanity, every aspect of creation has been touched by sinfulness, has been touched by evil, has been touched by wickedness. Not only is there now sinful nature in mankind that's being passed down and sin in our own hearts, but there are uh, fallen angels, demons, Satan being the leader of them, deceiving and leading us even from the outside towards evil and sinfulness. It's outside, it's inside, and, and things are bad. Pastor Ed made a, a great note to us in our sermon discussion earlier this week, though, that, uh, that they are bad in, in this season. A time before the law was given, a time before the law was given to restrict evil, a time before there was even a government or a nation or rulers to restrict evil. Uh, in this time, wickedness was running amok, uh, multiplying, as you saw in the Word, on top of one another over and over and over. And not only was, is this true of them, then, but we could read that and maybe even describe our own generation. Maybe even describe, if you're honest, your own heart. Paul does. When he writes Romans chapter 7, verse 18, he describes himself very similar to this. He says in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. You see, this is a description of mankind then, uh, but it's a description of mankind now. That there is evil in our hearts. It just takes the Lord to make us aware of that. To open our eyes to see that we're really not as great as we really thought that we were. And so 
Let us humble ourselves even this morning to consider that this verse, verse 5, describes us very well, far too well. And what was the Lord's response? The Lord had a response to what happened in 6, 1, and 2. That was to remove His Spirit from them at 120 years. The Lord responds to the sinfulness again here, again These two sections paralleling one another in word and in theme. And the Lord responds in verse 6 and says, The Lord was sorry. Think about that. The Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth and it grieved Him to His heart. The Lord God was grieved because of man's sin. Consider if that was true then, that that would still be true now, that the Lord is grieved because of your sin and my sin. It's not just something little that God dusts away, but that our sinfulness is an attack on the Lord. It's rebellion against Him. It's a denial of Him. It's aiming to try to become Him. The Lord is grieved because of their sin. The Lord is grieved because of our sin as well. He was sorry that He had made man on the earth. Now this doesn't mean that God was surprised, caught off guard, and that man's actions in this moment caused Him to throw into motion plan B. And that that, that They thwarted his plan in a sense. No, we're helped by some of similar language that shows up in 1 Samuel chapter 15 where the Lord was grieved because of another man's sin, that is King Saul. And says in 1 Samuel chapter 15 verse 11, God said, I regret, I was sorry that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. The Lord regretted that he had made Saul king. Did he not see that coming? Did he not know what Saul was going to do? Why would he have made him that in the first place? What we see here is that God's heart breaks over sin. We see Him showing these human emotions. Uh, This is the best way God and Moses could put down on paper what He was feeling in those moments. And yet, let's remember this, that God may feel regret or feel grief or feel sorry in that moment, but He's not ruled by his regret. He's not ruled by his grief. He's ruled by his sovereignty. He's ruled by holiness. He's ruled um, by righteousness in this moment. And so he acts righteously. He acts in holiness. And that is judgment. That is judgment. We, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, after the Lord said that he regretted that, Samuel spoke, saying to Saul, 
in verse 28, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. That was David. But he goes on and says, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not man that he should have regret the lord regretted was sorry was grieved in this moment but that would not rule him what would rule him is his honor his glory his righteousness his just justice and he would judge and that's why he says in verse 7 the Lord said, therefore, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. If what God said in verse 3 was a hint of the coming judgment in 120 years, this is a full-out, clear display that judgment is coming. And he lays it out perfectly clear for all of us to see that he is going to blot out everything. And if we know our Bibles, we know what's coming in the latter half of chapter 6, and chapter 7, and chapter 8, and chapter 9. It, it's the flood. The flood, the rains of water for 40 days and 40 nights that fill the earth and drown out everything on the earth except what God chooses to save. Except Noah and his wife, his sons and their wives and all of the animals that God calls and sends to be saved on the ark. You see, when wickedness multiplies, judgment abounds. And yet we have, in verse 8, a bit of hope. Something that this entire passage has been building to. Something that gives us hope. When we read in, in verse 8, after seven verses of depravity, wickedness, multiplying on itself, judgment after judgment, in verse 8, one word, but, but, there's, there's something about to change here. There's, there's going to be some bit of hope in this moment. When we read, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This ought to give us hope that if Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, that there's a way to find favor in the eyes of the Lord for all of us. That if Noah found it, that we could find it too. That our world could find it too. Even in the midst of multiplying mankind, multiplying wickedness, multiplying judgment, there is a way to find favor. Favor, in our English text, is the Hebrew word for grace. When the Old Testament 
was translated into Greek, they used the same word that in our Greek New Testament we translate as grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Undeserved, unmerited favor. It's not as if Noah was different than the description that we have in verses 1 through 7. He wasn't better than anybody else in that moment. Noah was just as sinful as others. Noah was, was no different. And the first thing we find out about Noah, other than what his name meant back in chapter 5, is that he found favor, that he found grace. And we could jump into next week's passage where we then see it said that uh, in verse 9 that these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Notice though the first thing that was said about Noah, that he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. His righteousness was not his own. His righteousness was a righteousness given to him, as Hebrews tells us, by faith. Uh, His walking with God was not in his own strength, as if he was better than the mighty men, the Nephilim of that day. Noah's ability to walk with the Lord was um, given to him by the Lord himself. We need to remember that. In a season, in a generation, even for us that is full of sinfulness, is full of wickedness, we ourselves, if we just consider our own lives, it doesn't take very long to consider our own sinfulness, our own wickedness that abounds. We know that if we were to be judged according to our life, By a holy and righteous God, judgment would abound in that moment. That we would deserve judgment. We would would deserve being separated from God for all eternity. But Noah found favor, and there's a way for us to find favor as well. Jesus uses these moments in in history in Genesis 6 1 through 8 to warn people in his day and age to turn to the Lord in Matthew chapter 24 verse 36 Jesus calls this passage and what's happening here as mankind and wickedness and judgment multiply he calls this the days of Noah He says in Matthew 24, verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, meaning the hour of his return, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, They were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. 
and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, listen to what Jesus' command is in light of being in the days of Noah. Then, as well as in his generation, as well as in our generation, he closes and says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Stay awake. Be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. Christian, stay awake. Be ready. Walk with the Lord. Call upon the Lord. Uh, By faith, live a righteous life. One that you would be proud of putting before the Lord. Stay awake. But he also says to those in that generation, those who had yet to believe in him, stay awake. Be ready. Jesus Christ will come in a day when you don't know. A day when you're unaware of it. This should cause all of us, if you're a Christian or not a Christian, considering your own life, considering your own eternity, realizing that you, like this generation in Genesis 6, are sinful and deserve judgment from God, and yet long to find favor like Noah found favor. And we can find it because God's one and only Son took the abounding judgment that we deserve upon Himself. He took the the judgment that you and I deserve because of our sinfulness when He died on the cross. He suffered in our place. He bore the wrath of God. He bore the judgment of God in that moment. He shed his own blood. He, the, the Spirit of God, the breath of God was taken out of him in that moment. And he died. He died and was buried in the tomb. And thanks be to God, he rose from the dead on the third day. Paul helps us to realize that we ought to put our faith and trust in Jesus and, and be saved by this very grace that Jesus himself offers us. In Romans chapter 5, verse 18, he says, Therefore, as one trespass, one sin of Adam led to the condemnation for all men, he says, so one act of righteousness, that being by Jesus, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many, the world, were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Not because of a righteousness of our own, but because of Christ's righteousness. His death and His resurrection. He goes on to say, Now the law came 
to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. When God gave the Israelites the law, it just made it abundantly clear that they, was, that they were as sinful as the Lord knew they were before that. So when they read the law, it was like a mirror looking back into their hearts, proving that they were sinful. And it just made their lives look even more sinful than they thought it was before. But Paul says, as that begins to happen in your life and in my life, the grace of God abounds even more than that. That's the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. But Noah found favor. He found favor when he realized that he was sinful. He found favor when he re realized that he couldn't save himself. He found favor when he realized that not even the mighty men were going to be able to save him or his family. He found favor when he realized that only God would be able to save them. You, you find favor when you realize that you're a sinner. You find favor when you realize that you can't save yourself and that there's no superhero on this earth or any other world that will be able to save you in the end. You find favor when you realize that the only one that could save you is God's very own son who died and rose from the dead and took your judgment that when your sin multiplied, his grace abounded. And we need to remember that as Christians when we fall into sin to stand back up in faith and remember it was not us who saved us in the first place. It was him. And to rest in the grace of God again and live, walk, and be righteous for his name's sake. But if you're not a Christian here this morning realizing for maybe the very first time how sinful you really are before the Lord who is holy and righteous, realize that's God's favor to you, God's grace to you. And do what Jesus warned us to do. Stay awake. Or in another place, repent and believe. Just consider those words that we sang just before we sat down to hear the word this morning. Those words from Ephesians chapter 2. That we were dead in our sins and trespasses. But God made us alive by grace through faith. Realize that's the only way of salvation that's available to all of mankind. But it's available to all of mankind. So trust the Lord Jesus this morning. Walk in faith as Noah did after this moment as well. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for revealing to us our need for a Savior. 
maybe a year ago, maybe 10 years ago, maybe 50 years ago, showing us in the depths of our heart how sinful we really are and how desperate we are for someone to save us that we wouldn't be able to save ourselves, that no other human was going to be able to save us, that we needed you and you alone to save us, to be merciful towards us, to be gracious towards us. Father, thank you for revealing our need of salvation. Thank you for revealing your way of salvation in your one and only Son, Jesus Jesus, thank you for coming and living a perfect, sinless, righteous life. The life that had never been lived before that. And yet, being willing to lay down your life for us. To take our judgment that we so justly deserve. We thank you that by faith, we receive your very spirit. And so we thank you, spirit, for reigning in our hearts. We pray, spirit, that you would have your way in us, rule us, that we might not see what we think is good and take it for ourselves in this life, but that we might live in accordance with you and your ways and your word. Father, I pray that you this morning would reveal yourself for the first time uh, or again to those who have yet to trust you. Whether adult or child, they have been striving in their own efforts to become some sort of mighty man or woman to save themselves and yet God, I pray that you would reveal to them that there is no salvation under heaven but in the name of Jesus. And so save them this morning, God, I pray. Make them your sons and daughters. God, we ask for your help in this. Not only now in this moment, but in this week as we go away from this place. We ask for your help, and we ask in Jesus' name, amen.